You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person, Funky Backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council. So you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We are not coming to you from the train track enclosed nerve center like we normally do. We're coming to you from my home and the council members. Never expected to say that. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me the council's voice on social media at Council of DC. Listeners, this is a special round of hearing a council interviews, one we never expected to have to do and hope that we'll never have to repeat in the future. This is a special COVID edition of the council. So let me introduce my uh, guest, as always, the first uh, guinea pig guest of each new round of Hearing the Council, uh, Ward 1 Council member, Brianne Nadeau. Uh, hey, thanks Josh. for joining us. So um, this is an unexpected circumstance, the first of many that we've had to deal with uh, going back a month or so. Uh, talk to me about how you're uh, experiencing this as a council member. This is uh, your role is to serve your constituents, but you never thought that you'd be serving them in quite this way. Yeah. Um, so, Josh, you know that I'm the chair of the Human Services Committee, and so part of my job as council member, in addition to serving the people of Ward 1, is really to make sure that we have resources available for our most vulnerable residents. Um, so, you know, people experiencing homelessness, people with disabilities, um, people who um, are in need of our social safety net. So that's been um, my major focus um, since this all started. I mean, as a ward council member, there's also a lot of day-to-day um, work that we do for constituents that's still ongoing. Um, when we first um, started um, working from home from our office and when we were encouraging others to do the same, we definitely saw, um, you know, we, a lot of calls and emails from folks who were trying to interpret the mayor's orders or um, trying to figure out the, the ways that they could keep themselves safe and not get others sick. Um, and we've also seen so many people volunteering and, and really um, giving um, their time um, and money to help others who um, really need the assistance. Maybe they um, they can't go out and get their own groceries because they're um, immunocompromised or high risk in other ways. And so we've got a couple of networks in Ward 1 of volunteers that are doing some really incredible work. So it's been um, very much day-to-day um, changes in what the government's doing and what we're asking others to do. Um, and I think in general, the public has been incredibly patient and understanding and cooperative in, in helping us um, keep everyone safe. So I've been very proud, in particular, of the Ward 1 residents. And do you think the government is rising to the challenge? I do. And I think working together in a way that, you know, sometimes politics don't allow. Um, I think this is definitely a situation where we need to put politics aside and, and rise above that in our our mayor and our Department of Health have really um, been leading the charge here. Council's been very um, 
supportive of the mayor and, and working with her to make sure she has the tools she needs. I have to say that um, by far, I think the Department of Human Services has um, just exceeded all expectation and even capacity that we thought they could potentially have in the way that they're stepping up to help people who are really vulnerable, whether it's people who are homeless, who are at risk of contracting the disease um, or people who have contracted the disease and need isolation. Um, they've actually opened up several additional sites so that they can provide people with individual hotel rooms and care that they need. Um, they're providing, um, they're, they're operating hotlines to help people get services throughout the city. Um, they've moved um, in a very short period of time, they moved all services online so people don't have to apply for their public benefits now in person. Um, you know, so many people now are finding themselves in need of um, food assistance, cash assistance, unemployment benefits, um, you know, things that they never in their wildest dreams would have thought they needed. And then, of course, so many people who already were receiving those benefits um, really still need that support. And so we've taken a system that um, was largely based on in-person interactions and moved it to a phone and internet-based system um, within a matter of weeks, um, which you know, I'm not a tech person, so in my mind, we should always be able to do these things, you know, quickly, but, but I also know um, there's a lot of infrastructure. I mean, when you're talking about technology, someone has to build that system, um, and so I've been really impressed uh, with the way Department of Human Services has stepped up um, in my cluster in particular. Yeah, it's... Um... There, there have definitely been some comments, uh, you know, some justified about uh, applying for unemployment and the challenges of applying. For yeah. Employment. You know, the analogy I would make is imagine if you were a uh, restaurant that served uh, fancy Italian food and you had a maximum capacity of 100 people. And then all of a sudden people were asking you to serve uh, Mexican food to 1,000 people. Yeah. You could do it, but man, you would have to make some real staff adjustments, equipment adjustments, and I think given the magnitude of the increase of demand and the total scope in terms of what's expected of them, um, clearly we need to do better. Um, yeah. But uh, I think they've they've reacted remarkably. Yeah, the, the, it's, a, it's a really good point. So the Department of Employment Services is the agency that oversees unemployment benefits, as you might expect, and um, that department and Councilmember Silverman have worked really hard to get that system working for everybody. Um, it, we've we've given benefits to something like fifty three thousand people in the past four weeks. And the system, I think, at one point the city administrator was saying the system was essentially taking in the volume that we would expect for a whole year in a matter of a few weeks. Um, which isn't to say that anybody's frustration is misplaced because. And you're, you know, if you're needing unemployment benefits, you're not in a good spot. Um, and so we are doing everything we can to, um, to get those benefits out the door. And actually millions of dollars have been paid out in March and April already. Um, one of the things that happens is there's a little bit of a lag. So council passed legislation to say, okay, you know, um, there's going to be no work search requirement and there's going to be no waiting period. Um, and that goes into law, but then, as you mentioned, the system has to update. So someone has to go back and write the software to change the forms so that when you're applying online, those things take effect and it takes a minute. 
I was reading an article recently about how the systems across the country, the unemployment benefit systems, are based on like the original coding um, from 50 years ago. Um, and they were actually looking for people who knew how to do that coding because it it's not what we do anymore. Um, and my grandfather, Cobalt, what's that? Computer. Cobalt, think- yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So my grandfather was one of those computer programmers back in the day. In fact, in 1999, he was wandering around telling everybody that he caused Y2K, just like a total grandpa joke. Um, uh, but I, I sent him a message and I said, grandpa, like, is this the thing that you did? Like, do you know how to do this? And he was like, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm 86 years old and living in assisted living now. So it's not really something I can get up and help with, but, um, but it's an interesting thing, right? Because that's the generation that, that built that technology and apparently <laughs> hasn't been updated. Now I'm not saying that's our system, but I was interested to read that article. I mean, we're learning a lot about our country's infrastructure during this crisis um, and the gaps. And I, I'm hopeful. Okay. Hopeful might be too strong of a word, but I am hoping that our federal government is going to try to resolve some of these issues as we emerge because we can't, we can't suffer like this in all, you know, with all these systems not working right. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, if it ain't fix it, it's an expression for a reason. But at some point, you have to, you know, there's such risk aversion. I think particularly in the days of social media, if one little thing goes wrong, everyone hands you your head. So during right. better people were reluctant to take a functioning UI system offline to put in a new system. For sure. And when you put a huge demand on a system that's decades old, this so uh, yeah lesson and don't just go back to uh our old uh easy but flawed ways yeah um yeah back to the, the vulnerable population since i know that's uh your key focus or one of your key yeah focus. there's something cool about a stay-at-home order for people who don't have a home or yeah. are uh, victims of domestic oh yeah home or live in substandard housing um, what can you talk a bit more about what's being done to address those folks? Yeah, it's a really difficult one. And I know we've seen, um, you know, we've heard, I guess, interestingly, I don't know that there's, there's, there may be a disconnect between the data and what we're hearing from the advocates um, on this. And, you know, I always try to listen to the advocates, but we do hear that there's, there's been more um, domestic violence. Um, and that's always a concern when people are confined in, in different spaces, in, in, in close spaces. Um, so that's a tough one. I mean, there isn't an easy answer for how do we help people who have not a lot of space um, to spread out. You know, you may have, you know, two adults and several children in a, a smaller apartment. Um, we already know that we have issues with um, housing stock not being safe and dignified. Um, and that is all exacerbated when folks have to stay home. So, you know, one of the things that we're still working on with the mayor is um, opening up more sidewalk and road space for people to go out and walk safely. Um, so there can be more room, more social distance between us when we're out. We get a lot of complaints about just, you know, um, the sidewalks are too narrow for you to really properly social distance when you're out on a walk. Um, so we're working with DDOT on that. Um, they, they've closed some of the um, 
roads into parks and things like that, which is helpful. But what, what I think we really need is um, just on residential streets, even, you know, maybe taking away a lane of traffic on certain roads where people can sort of spread out, whether it's on foot or by bike, giving people more safe options outside. Um, and uh, really continuing to emphasize the importance of social distancing when you're outside. Um, now we're also getting more um, guidance on wearing cloth masks when we're outside, which is not a replacement for social distancing because the masks protect you a little bit, uh, a certain percentage, depending on what type of mask, but um, the social distancing is still critical. So I think it's really, it's, it's mostly about giving people more options for safe outside activities. Um, but when we talk about homeless individuals in particular, um, there's a number of things we're doing. Um, so again, when we have either people who are in shelter or unhoused on the street that we believe fall within a vulnerable category, and to be honest, if you've been living on the streets um, and you're chronically homeless, most likely you do have some related health issues that are going to make you more vulnerable. So for those folks, we're giving them individual hotel rooms as a preventative measure, not just if they've contracted uh, the infection. Um, and we also have individual hotel rooms for unhoused people who are infected with COVID-19. Um, we're in shelters, keeping them open 24 hours so people don't have to um, leave during the day and sort of be out and about and you know be at risk of contracting COVID-19. Um, and whenever anyone does go out and return to the shelter, they're screened by one of our partners at Unity Health. Um, to make sure they haven't, you know, they don't haven't developed a fever or any other symptoms. Um, so we're doing a lot of things to keep people who are unhoused safe. For those who um, are still living on the streets, we've put up, um, I think it's now 23, 32 hand washing stations um, and nine portable toilets. And I think we're going to have more portable toilets coming as well. Um, some of those are near the um, encampments that we've, we've all learned about over, you know, over time. And um, some are just in more heavily trafficked areas where we know um, unhoused people are are visiting. Right. I mean, I know one of the um, bills that you pushed for since you got on the council was availability of public restrooms. Yes. Do that in this country, and guess what? You shut down McDonald's and Starbucks, and not That's only right. a number of us, you know, knock on wood, fortunately, uh, housed people who rely on those if we're out for a long walk and uh, nature calls. But Lord knows if you're someone who has homeless, you've lost access to virtually all restrooms. And, and that's right. a fine uh, situation and a real public health uh, issue. So talk Absolutely. about your crusade. For um, so we've been working um, during the crisis with the Lou Committee of the People for Fairness campaign, who were the leaders on the public restrooms campaign. Um, and they have worked with us in DHS to get the um, hand washing stations and the um, porta potties, the um, portable toilets that we've put in place. And I think there's just a desire for more. Um, we've made clear, my office, I've made clear to the Department of General Services that we think it's perfectly appropriate to use the funds that um, were set aside for the public restroom initiative incentives for small businesses to be used for this purpose during the emergency. My understanding is they haven't needed to do so, um, but because the businesses are closed, no one's going to be getting paid out for an incentive to keep your bathroom open right now. And so that money uh, ostensibly this fiscal year is just sitting there 
Um, that's separate and apart from the um, the permanent restrooms that we put into the capital budget this year that we still hope will get to be built. Um, the the issue with moving forward on that right now is there's a whole public input process as to where the, those should go. And it's very hard to implement a public input process right now. So that's yeah. kind of on hold. I believe the first public restroom is going a half block from my house, which I'm going to assume is <laughs> a coincidence. It's um, a coincidence. Um, and it's also not from that budget. It was um, perhaps just the good sense of Department of General Services and Parks and Rec to put a standalone public restroom at the um, Walter Pierce Park um, as it's being renovated. So we are very excited about that. I will ask my fans, please do not start clustering around Walter Pierce Park now that you know it's a half block from where I live. Um, uh, so you said that that uh, the DGS was not having to dig into the incentive money for private businesses. Um, speaking of needing to dig into money, um, the latest the CFO has told us is that we are, for this fiscal year, which is basically in October, uh, yeah. we're uh, probably about 607 um, billion, million, 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 million on the $2.2 billion budget. Yeah. Um, do you have a sense of what, how deep of a cut that is? Um, is this the happy, hopey things we wanted to have happen are not going to happen? Or is this something that we, are we going to be looking at cuts to, uh, of a magnitude that really cut deep and hurt and things that we assumed we'd always have to go away. So let me first make a very important political point. So put on your political point alarm. Uh, $600 million is about the amount that we were shafted by the federal government in the CARES Act. Right. So the, the importance of Congress allocating that money to us is very clear. Um, it would have been better for us to get it all and to be able to use it only for response and recovery. Um, but at the moment, getting it all and being able to use it to fill that budget gap um, would also be helpful to the extent that it's allowable for those purposes. Um, but in any case, there's a way to offset you know, reserve funds and and um, federal funds and in a way that wouldn't hurt as badly if we could be made whole um, by the feds. Um, so I think we need to keep that in mind. We're looking at a similar sized hole in the, the I mean, the budget that we're supposed to be looking at right now. Right. That, yeah. Until May 6th by COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the last I heard again, it's a similar number. Yeah. Uh, at that time, it's across 12 months and not six, but right, right. people say, oh, we have this big federal check coming. We have all these rainy day funds. Let's finally use them. And the magnitude of the problem is so large. Huge, right. So you think about, people do like to talk about the rainy day fund as though it's a magic fix for all kinds of things. And the thing to keep in mind is a $1.5 billion rainy day fund is essentially what? two months of operating expenses for the government, right? It's, it's really a great fund for plugging holes here and there, but it's not something that can keep us running indefinitely. Um, and when you don't have revenue from hotels, restaurants, theaters, um, you know, all of these entities, then 
you're you're looking at way more than the the reserve fund can handle. So when you ask your question about, you know, are we doing a haircut? Are we doing some deep cuts? You know, think about it this way. For those who've done budget advocacy, most of the time, a big ask in budget advocacy is like five million to twenty million dollars, right? I mean, folks will come in and say, you know, we need five million dollars for school-based mental health care. We need twenty million dollars for um, you know another education program or you know, for um, housing homeless folks or, you know, whatever it is. Those are, and those are huge numbers, right? I mean, when you're talking about the Human Services Committee or the Education Committee or any of us who are really trying to um, meet budget gaps in the, the council's part of the budget process, that's a lot of money to find. So compare that to $607 million. I mean, we're talking about deep cuts from lots of places and, um, you know, I think that's the thing, you know, we're, that's the thing that the CFO and the mayor are working on right now. And um, I do not envy that position and I do not envy, you know, I, I'm not looking forward to the um, receiving the budget in May and having to, to see where those cuts were made and think about, you know, how we're going to, as a council, um, uh, change the budget to, to meet what we think the urgent needs are. I think this is a really difficult situation all around. And um, I'm worried. I'm worried maybe less about the human services programs, which tend to be more entitlement based. Um, but, you know, a lot of the other programs that we've seen that receive um, a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there, they're really going to be um, hurting, I think. Right. And I mean, I, just to take a very recent example, the, the second, um, emergency bill the council passed, um, which did not have aid in it for undocumented workers. Right. Uh, there's some discussion about whether this was the right or wrong amount, but it was 70, 80 uh, million dollars uh, would have been the cost of that program. And people tend to stovepipe these conversations, should we or shouldn't we do that? And then in a separate stovepipe, we have to cut 600 million from the current year. Right. And what, I, what really you're saying is we can do the aid to, to undocumented workers, but then the other, you know, it crosses the line. Then that means we have to cut 700 million up to from right. this year. Possibly, right. Very possibly the right thing to do, but you just have to, you, you can't consider things in isolation. It, it, it cuts across. Right. And, and you have to think about too, I mean, where are the cuts coming from and are they going to impact the same people? Right. So we had to fight for a couple years to get about $2.5 million in the budget for legal assistance to undocumented residents, um, right? And that is oversubscribed, that program, right. right? So you think about programs like that that haven't been around that long, you know, where are they going to be on the chopping block? Um, and that's a, the other thing that wasn't in this um, round of legislation that I'm working on still with the chairman and um, with Councilmember Grasso and the advocates is um, support for our early childhood providers because my big concern is um, we may not be doing enough to keep everybody afloat and if they can't reopen when we're ready to reopen people won't be able to go back to work um, that's huge and the other thing that I don't think folks are thinking about is the fact that even in the remarkable good times we've had 
uh, you know, economically for the past few years, uh, we still rely on nonprofits to do a lot of what in other countries around the world would be government work. And with nonprofits struggling and sadly, inevitably, a number of them failing during these times, not only are we going to have a tighter belt for ourselves, but we are not going to be able to rely on them. And we're going to have to gap fill things that they might have been doing before. Um, but instead of doing it through grant money that we don't have, we may have to do it ourselves. I mean, it really changes. Yeah. No, it's a really good point. And this is an issue that I was dealing with a couple of weeks ago because you think about most of the services we provide, we provide through partners right? We have every meal we provide is through a contract. Every human services service we provide, not every, but we have so many community partners um, who are providing, say, the mental health counseling that goes with permanent supportive housing. Um, or, you know, the day-to-day services that the senior centers provide um, are largely run by nonprofit partners. And if they aren't able to fully do their jobs right now during the stay-at-home order, um, how are they getting paid and how are they getting made whole? So we've been having these conversations, and I think actually um, that we've largely resolved most of these payment issues because um, we need these organizations to exist, right? We can't implement the majority of, of the programs we do without them existing, so, for example, um, with permanent supportive housing, the Department of Human Services has been able to work with providers to arrange payments based on, um, you know, what they would be getting paid if they were doing full services. Um, with any um, Medicaid-based service, our government is applying for a waiver that um, actually would allow people to get paid based on last year's service provision, um, as an example. Um, even though they might not be making as many home visits, they're doing more phone visits, um, and that'll help keep those entities whole. And with the um, Department on Aging and Community Living, um, folks who used to be working in a senior center or going door to door, whatever they do with their seniors, now their job is to make phone calls all day, checking on the seniors they serve to say, hey, how are you doing today? You know, Have you heard from any family? Do you need any food? Do you need any... Um, other services and just, you know, that idea of preventing social isolation among our seniors. I've been really proud of the way our government has um, adapted to the needs of our residents and also the needs of the providers um, when it comes to getting paid. Um, I also should mention, and I've been really impressed with, um, uh uh-oh, hold on. I'm back. Sorry. Uh, You probably could still see me, but I couldn't see you. Um, <laughs> so um we have a senior meal program that um largely senior our largely our senior meals had been on congregate sites meaning people would go to a place to eat together that's obviously not safe right now so the um the department and their partners um which includes organizations like terrific inc and iona and seaberry um moved from having about I think 250 some people getting meals delivered to like 3,500 more people signing up in a week to get meals delivered. So they had to build up the infrastructure really quickly. There were some bumps in the beginning, but now the way it works is everybody gets one delivery a week with seven meals. 
um, and it's Yellow Cab and Seabury that's doing the deliveries and they're working with the lead agencies in each ward to, um, to get them to the people who need them. And it's been, um, you know, again, like we're implementing all these things for the first time in huge scale. It's not without any complication, but I think really a tremendous effort overall. So, um, and folks can still sign up for those programs. So. Now, one question I have is thinking of life after COVID is uh, it's kind of a walk that you wish for that government has shown remarkable uh, flexibility and adaptability. When this ends, are we ever going to be able to say we can't do, we, we uh, don't have the speed or flexibility or nimbleness to do X or Y when, thank God, I think we've risen to the challenge and have shown that nimbleness and flexibility and, yeah. So I We've think yes. Expectations on government. Yeah. No, I think yes. I mean, I think one of the things we're going to have to demonstrate to the public is at what expense we were able to ramp up this quickly. Um, it costs a lot of money to scale these programs up as quickly as we did. And, um, you know, we will eventually have the numbers to show that that's, those aren't sustainable. Um, and I will say too, the government workers who've been standing up these programs and the community organizations that have been standing up these programs are working around the clock. You know, they're around the clock. They're in jobs where they're putting themselves in risk. In some cases, they're away from their families. Um, and for their own mental health, that's also not sustainable. So I think those are the things that we need to look at. I mean, there are some changes we've made that I think we should certainly keep going, right? Like the Department of Human Services just put all the applications online. Well, we're not going to take them off, but you know, we're not going to go back to saying, well, you can no longer apply online. Um, do I think we're going to get to keep receiving alcohol delivery? I don't know. I think that's another thing people would love to see keep going. I'm not opposed to it. I'm also not necessarily the one who's going to make that decision. But I mean, there are certain things like that, right? That, well, now that we've done it, can we ever go back? Um, I think to the extent that these things cost a lot of money and personal investment from the people implementing them, we have to figure out the right way to scale them back at, at the right time um, and really evaluate which of them can continue on without that type of um, personal and monetary expense. Gotcha. Now we're getting closer to the end of our time. Let's pivot real quickly and ask um, how you're dealing with this as a yeah. young child at home and uh, uh, you know, uh, how, how are you doing this personally? Well, we had a flood on Monday in our house and that was not awesome. Um, so that was the bad way to start the week, but I think we're through that now. Um, it's, so I always try to put my experience in the perspective of, you know, my husband and I both still are working, right? We have jobs. We're very lucky. Um, and Zoe was laid off, unfortunately. <laughs> well, Zoe's daycare is closed, but they do a morning circle time via Zoom, which is really confusing, I think, to toddlers. I mean, she's sometimes she enjoys it and sometimes it stresses her out. And so that's been sort of interesting. I think um, it's definitely a shift and it sort of exacerbates that sense that I, I as a working parent, have always that sense of guilt of when I'm away from my kid and, you know, um, I should be spending more time with her. Now it's, we're all here together. And yet, because we're both working, neither of us is spending the time of kind of time with her that we think she deserves and getting the attention she deserves. And so I know a lot of parents are struggling with that. Um, 
And I, you know, I always try to put it in context, you know, we're stressed out, we're struggling, but we're safely housed. Um, you know, we are economically secure and we're very, very fortunate. Um, it doesn't certainly doesn't diminish the experience that we're having or the stress that we're feeling, but it's, you know, everything has to be put into context. And I, um, you know, I just don't know. I mean, I, as a parent, I worry like how this is going to impact her long-term this, the, you know, the amount of TV she's watching and, you know, today, I mean, we, the big fight we have right now is that I want her to go outside and she says, no, I want to watch TV. And I feel like, um, you know, really having to push the issue. No, you know, we need to go outside at least once a day. So you can like, remember what outside is like. Um, so we want every family to have, you know, those options. As we said in the beginning, we were talking about people who are confined to close quarters, how important it is to be able to get outside. Um, want everyone to be able to do that safely. We bought her cause you know, so when I've put on my cloth mask, it's really freaked her out. Um, so we're trying to figure that out because it's not very productive to try to take a toddler outside while she's having a tantrum because you're scaring her with your face mask. Um, so I'm trying to get some that look maybe more normal than my homemade ones. And then we bought her like one of those little, because it's, not, it's not safe to put masks on children who are too small. So we bought her um, a sun hat that has like a, like a clear protective, almost looks like a beekeeper hat. Yeah, like a visor. Um, like a visor. Yeah. yeah. It, it look, kind of looks like when you see people in, in ICU wearing the, the PPE that goes all the way across, but it's like on a sun hat. So we bought her one of those. We figure she picked it out. So um, we hope she'll wear it. But, you know, it's it's little stuff like that. I mean, we're just... My husband works in healthcare, um, not on the front lines, but he's um, spent the past three weeks working like 15 hour days straight through the weekends, trying to reorganize the workforce for the company that he's at. So he's been moving 3000 people into different jobs so that they can better serve their um, patients and um, take some pressure off the hospital system um, because they do like primary care and all the other stuff. They don't have their own hospitals. Um, so the more they can do to, um, flatten the curve with their patients, um, the less pressure they will be on our hospital system. So it's, it's really, um, we feel lucky that we're getting to do really important work right now. Um, and, uh, and both of us, I think are really just hoping it's enough because there's so many people out there who are really struggling. Do you, do you know folks that, that have COVID that have tested positive or <sighs> Yeah, we do. Um, unfortunately, he um, had a, a acquaintance from college who died a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's only 34. So, you know, it's a young person. Um, my mom and sister both work in a healthcare system in Detroit as well. Um, and so they have colleagues who've contracted it. Um, and we did have a friend from daycare um, whose father also contracted. So it's, you know, I think we're all going to know people. Um, unfortunately. Um, and we're just hoping that we can, we can get folks through to the other side healthy. Yeah. Um, well, let's quickly, and we've never done a live uh, one before. I'm just very quickly going to go into Facebook and see. I don't think anyone has sent questions, but. Oh, yeah, ever? we can wait and see. Yeah, and I'm here. If, uh, quickly go over to uh, a couple of quick closeout questions and, and you'll be free to, free to return to uh, plumbing and children. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, 
well, while I'm doing this, why don't we actually do the, the question? So what is the strangest thing you've eaten um, since you've been quarantined? Mm. So I don't know if you know, I am five months pregnant. Um, we may be breaking. We may be. <laughs> okay, see, let me see if I can give you a bump shot. Hold on. It's, it's there. There's a bump. Yeah. Um, I, I also am five months pregnant, according to the. <laughs> <laughs> the bump meter. Yeah. So um, my thing this time is garlic stuffed olives and also fruit snacks. Okay. Oh, now I'm actually playing. So that's not helpful. Um, <laughs> okay. I think that. Try that one more time. Um, so those are your. Those are your. Are those your go tos, or are those your things you? been uh, reduced to eating well so no those are my like pregnancy cravings um it's also passover and i have not been doing a very good job of following the passover rules of unleavened products we were supposed to be on a baby moon this week because it was council recess and we're supposed to be on a cruise and i had told myself oh well it's a baby moon it's a cruise you're gonna just We'll do Passover seders and then forget it. You're not going to do the rest of the unleavened thing for the week. So I kind of just said, all right, well, we didn't get our cruise, so I'm still not holding myself to Passover rules because it's just too hard. Um, so kudos to those who are still following all of the Passover laws. We are eating lots of matzah anyway, but not only matzah. Um, Would you like to think a Passover joke I uh, wrote while in high school? Yes, please. Did you hear about the convenience store that only serves Jews during Passover? No. Seven unleavened. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. This is not new. The, the, the way I am now is sadly the way I've always been. Yeah. Well, you've now, since that time, you've, you've really cultivated it and you think made it your, your, your shtick. We're finally honed. So we did believe you're not getting one question on Facebook Live. Which is how well do you think DC is doing enforcing the stay home laws and safe distancing? So I think our success at enforcing the stay home stay at home order is wholly dependent on the cooperation of our residents. And I want to say that at least in Ward One, um, from what I've seen on our strolls or you know running errands, is that people are doing a very good job. Um, you know, the challenge is there's only so far we can go in enforcement um, unless you want to start locking people up, which I don't. Um, and I don't think the mayor does. And frankly, that creates a whole nother issue where you could be exposing, you know, folks in a jail or in a police precinct to, um, to COVID-19. So, you know, what the uh, enforcement options we have are our parks and rec staff, our rangers are out patrolling and, and getting people off fields and fenced in areas and our police are doing the same uh, in general. Um, they're trying to do that in a way that, that limits contact. Um, so using the loudspeaker or, you know, talking to folks through from the car or out the window, um, you know, they do disperse crowds and sometimes people come back. And so I think this is about us continuing to educate people um, and remind them of the risk that they're placing themselves in and others. Um, so, you know, I think we're doing our best, um, but it really, really depends on the cooperation of our residents. 
Um, and now going back to our previous topic, because you brought it up, um, as someone who's expecting in a time of COVID, how, yeah. how do you feel about that? And with that, what level of stay at home and what level our hospitals will be at? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a question. Um, so I'm due in September. I'm very hopeful that by then we'll all be back to our lives. Um, but you know, we're doing some things. We're trying to get more midwives certified um, right now so that we have extra capacity for um, um, labor and delivery. Um, I know I've had a couple constituents who've given birth in the past couple of weeks we've talked to about, you know, ensuring that you can have your partner with you. Um, there are some states that had eliminated, you, you could have no one with you, not even one person which, you know, I can't imagine. I mean, labor can go on for days for some people, you know, and that is really a hardship to be alone, especially in a healthcare system that's already overburdened. So it's not as though you've got, you know, someone hanging out with you that's a nurse or someone else just on your own. So I think we've done a good job of preserving people's supports there. Um, we have jokingly discussed a home birth, which is not the kind of thing that I really would choose for myself personally. Um, but since my husband grew up on a farm and has delivered quite a few livestock in his day, we have talked about it as, you know, if we have to, <laughs> we can do it. Um, but I have my 20-week um, ultrasound on Friday. Um, so we're hoping that everything will be good and uh, we can keep planning for the hospital birth that we, we had anticipated. But um, I know it's a stressful time for a lot of people and you know, all of our healthcare providers are doing their best to to keep those types of things happening normally and safely. So, do we? I I, my own experience, um, but is it twenty? How, what, how many weeks do you get the gender? Uh, we we so we did it through a blood test. So this would be the twenty week ultrasound is normally when you can see, um, but a lot of people do a blood test earlier, especially in an older pregnancy like mine, because you're looking for genetic things as well. So we already know we're having another girl, and Zoe is very excited about her baby sister. Awesome! I'm I'm team girl, so uh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, you're a girl dad. So, um, one more silly question. So, what song have you had on repeat to keep you company? I have been playing a lot of Indigo Girls. So we cracked down and did the Amazon Music subscription, uh, mainly so that the little one could listen to Frozen on demand, which I'm regretting. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of Indigo Girls, a lot of Dixie Chicks, a lot of Pink. Um, today, Bruce Springsteen was doing a, um, a live concert on his Sirius XM channel. So I was listening to that. Yeah. Um, oh, and I'm trying to expose jo uh, Zoe to some of the 80s classics. So we did some Huey Lewis in the news, um, some Lionel Richie, and some Kenny Loggins. Yeah, I would, I would think uh, Heart of Rock and Roll, starting with the kind of heartbeat, like that would be kind of reassuring. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, well, I think I'd say we're out of time, but uh, I think we're over time, actually. <laughs> yeah. But I'm uh, very grateful to you, uh, council member, for taking the time out of your day and uh, work and plumbing travails and child care and home education. Uh, to spend a little time with us, but I think it helps folks to see face-to-face, uh, -face, person -to person and hear a bit more yeah. about the work side and the home side of you and what you're, uh, you're doing uh, during this time we're all living through.
Well, thank you. And Josh, congratulations on moving from radio to uh, visual media. You know, I mean, that's a big step for you. I, I have far, far, and I've always had great respect for the folks at DC Radio, but now that I'm trying to do this myself poorly, uh, it's uh, uh, anxious to get back to the real professionals. <laughs> Very good. Thanks a lot. Take care. No problem. Now let me just uh, do it because we probably have some new uh, listeners and viewers. Uh, so yes. new folks, uh, you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and all of you, thanks very much for joining us. Tune in again next time. Uh, traditionally, we're uh, on DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. And as always, I'm Josh Gibson, and this is not a hearing care. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Outtakes! <laughs> I was doing so well. This is not a council hearing. This is hearing counsel. Thanks. Take care, counsel.